Make sure you're subscribed to Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit that subscribe button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Do we really live in a country where only the left gets to do political satire? If anyone in the right half does this stuff, it can't possibly be funny because they have to be doing it for all the wrong reasons. When you have people who couldn't even begin to articulate for you what it means to believe in the triune God, but can tell you how Donald Trump is God's anointed servant, then you look at that and you go, yeah, that just sounds like you have an entirely false God. Many evangelical interpreters will take that Romans 7 text and say that that was Paul before his conversion. Now, this is an amazing thing to think about, that Paul before his conversion was spirit wrestling with flesh. <laughs> we would say, no, no, before conversion, you have none of the spirit. You have only flesh. So with all of the things that Jesus says about his return, there isn't anything that even really implies at all that there could be some multiple returnings of Jesus. When the Son of Man returns, he will return in his glory, and he will judge the living and the dead, and that is the end of all things. Blame the Lutherans. They brought us over here. Everybody blames the Lutherans. <laughs> we know something has changed. I have lived long enough to remember a time when Christians were not considered the bad guys. We were considered the good guys. Maybe not everyone was a Christian, and maybe not everyone agreed with everything that Christians wanted to do, but we were largely considered to be a positive force, a positive influence in American society and culture. Well, that has changed. There is now a significant portion of the population, and maybe it was always something among the elites who view Christians and Christianity with a great deal of suspicion. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in live on this Wednesday afternoon, January the 31st. We're going to talk about Christianity in a hostile culture. Aaron Wren joins us. He's a writer and consultant in Indianapolis, co-founder and senior fellow at American Reformer, author of the new book, Life in the Negative World, Confronting Challenges in an Anti-Christian Culture. Aaron, welcome back. Thanks for having me. What are the consequences of Bible-believing creedal Christians believing that we are living in a culture that is either positive or neutral toward Christianity? Well, if you believe that, then you're probably going to find a lot of things disorienting. For example, you're going to find it hard to understand why many moral failings in political leaders, you know, like having an affair, no longer seem to be much of a big deal. Whereas 25, 30 years ago, it might have ended your career to have had a, an affair. So like you need to understand kind of how the world works. You could also sort of disadvantage yourself in maybe even in some very severe ways. For example, there have been a number of people who've been prosecuted by the Biden administration for protesting at abortion clinics. And these were not violent protests. They were just some peaceful protests. But, you know, in essence, protesting at abortion clinics has been essentially criminalized in America. So if you think that, you know, you still live in a, in a country where there's going to be some respect for your beliefs, you know, you could end up, you know, on the wrong end of a criminal prosecution. And so that might be, of course, unfair or in many ways, but it's also reality. If you don't understand the changes that have happened in the world, 
then you're not going to be able to make sense of what you see around you. And again, you might actually disadvantage yourself by taking actions that 20, 30 years ago would have been no big deal, but today might destroy your life. You say that there was a time when Christianity was softly institutionalized in America. What do you mean by that? Well, we never had a state church. We always had essentially separation of church and state, and yet America was essentially a Protestant Christian country. There was a sort of generic Protestantism that was our de facto national religion. And you can see this going back to the 1950s, for example, when over half of adults attended church every Sunday. That was actually the high watermark in church attendance. We're putting in God we trust on our money, under God, in the uh, Pledge of Allegiance. There was still prayer and Bible reading in schools. And there's kind of a famous picture that gets posted on the internet a lot of the skyline of New York City with several of the buildings, the lights and the windows lit up as crosses for Easter. That was taken in 1956. And so I think that really shows that Christianity was sort of the the default national religion. We even had uh, at the time what they called the Protestant establishment or the WASP establishment, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And definitely Protestantism was certainly a marker of that. Again, doesn't mean everyone was devout. It doesn't mean that society was run in accordance with Christian principles necessarily, but Christianity was essentially held in honor and seen as the sort of default public religion of America. So you've gotten into it a little bit of kind of the time frame. What you're describing there is the positive world for Christianity. What else can you tell us about the positive world that there's still a generation of Christians that can remember it? Sure. So you can think of this era when we sort of had a sort of default, softly institutionalized kind of generic Protestantism, essentially extending from the founding of the country with the initial settlements in the early 1600s up through the 1960s and sometime in the 1960s when it starts to fall apart. And I date this sort of disintegration of that Christian consensus in America to around 1964, sort of where it starts. So after 1964, Christianity starts to go into a decline in America, decline in terms of church attendance, decline in terms of personal adherence, decline in terms of the moral and ethical systems of Christianity coming into question. And that's a decline that continues today. And I actually divide this period of decline from 1964 into the present into three eras or worlds that I call the positive, the neutral, and the negative world. And those refer to the way that society sees Christianity. So what I label the positive world, and this is a little bit of a refinement based on feedback I got from some earlier versions of my work, is this era, it's really from 1964 to 1994. It's the first 30 years of that period of decline. So it's not a time in which all is going well for Christianity. Quite the opposite, in fact. You know, the sexual revolution is happening, things of that nature. At the same time, Christianity is still basically viewed positively. Christian moral norms are essentially the moral norms of society. If you violate them, you could get into trouble. And to be known as a good church-going man makes you seem like an upstanding member of society, makes people want to hire you, for example. Think you're like an upstanding guy. Around 1994, we hit this tipping point where we entered an era, what I call the neutral world, lasting from 1994 to 2014, in which Christianity is not really seen positively anymore, but it's not really seen negatively yet either. It's just 
one more lifestyle choice among many in a sort of pluralistic public square. And there's still some residual force from Christian moral norms. And then in 2014, we had a second tipping point and enter what I've called the negative world, where for the first time in the 400-year history of America, sort of official elite culture now views Christianity negatively or at least skeptically. Christian moral norms are now expressly repudiated. And in fact, Christianity and different Christian groups are, are sometimes viewed as the main threat to the new public moral order. And this is a very dislocating shift that has happened, I think, in the last decade or so. What were Christianity's strategies in the positive and the neutral worlds? My work focuses primarily on the evangelical church. And so you would say um, there's like Catholics have their own thing going on. The mainline Protestants have their own thing going on. It's interesting to think about Lutheranism in there. I don't think Lutheranism uh, in America necessarily fits cleanly into some of these paradigms. But looking specifically at what we think of today as evangelicalism, it's really, in some senses, a product of this period of decline. You know, as the mainline churches began to lose adherence in the 70s, attendance was down. It was really evangelicals who were able to adapt to this period of decline and sort of revive the fortunes of Christianity in America a little bit. And so there were essentially three main strategies that I identify that they used. One was culture war, two was secret sensitivity, and three was cultural engagement. The first two occurred in the positive world, and in cultural engagement occurred in the neutral world. The culture war is the religious right as we know it. These are people who, starting in the 1970s, saw that the culture was not going their direction. We had abortion, we had the sexual revolution, no-fault divorce, all those things. And so they decided to mobilize politically to fight back. So we're going to take back the country. And you know, you think of people like Jerry Falwell or Pat Robertson. And I think the very name of the most noted organization of this era, the moral majority, speaks to a time in which it was at least plausible to claim that Christianity spoke for a majority. This is what it means to be in a positive world, to think that we represent the mainstream to some extent. Nobody would ever do that today. And of course, the religious right is still with us. That strain is still with us. Seeker sensitivity also emerged in the 70s with people like Bill Hybels at Willow Creek Church in suburban Chicago. And then a little later, people like Rick Warren at Saddleback Church out in Orange County. And this group of people saw that church attendance was in decline. And their response was to create a church that people would be willing to attend, to ditch the things that turned people off about church, like stodgy hymns and choir robes and denominational distinctives. They created essentially the non-denominational megachurch, as we know it today, which in many respects is the evangelical mainstream. It's informal, it's casual, it's sort of doctrine light, it's uh, topical therapeutic sermons, contemporary music, things of that nature. And again, that's very much with us as well. And then in the 90s, we end up with uh, another movement called cultural engagement, which was more predominantly an urban movement, pioneered by people like Tim Keller in uh, New York City, Redeemer Presbyterian Church there. And I think there's a couple of ways to conceptualize cultural engagement. One is that it was a secret sensitivity for the cities. 
This movement really took off as cities were coming back in the 90s under people like Mayor Giuliani in New York. Crime collapsed. Highly educated people started streaming into cities. And this movement was trying to reach them. It was also sort of the opposite of the culture war movement. Rather than fighting with a culture all the time, they wanted to take advantage of this new pluralistic public square in order to have a conversation and believing that Christianity could be articulated in a compelling way in this environment. And again, this is very much with us as well. And so there's, you know, there are other little groups here and there that don't fit cleanly with this. But I think those are sort of three main streams or thrusts of the way evangelicals created strategies for this period of decline and which were all very successful and really helped propel evangelicalism to a major mainstream phenomenon. When did the culture begin to adopt a suspicious view of Christianity? It's interesting. The reality is that sort of elites may never have been especially religious in a lot of ways. You know, people talk about some of our founding fathers, the, you know, you know, maybe they praised religion in public, but they weren't necessarily as in on it in private. And so I think there was always a sense in which elites were maybe a little bit irreligious, maybe thought it was a little kind of silly, but they went along with it. I, th- I think what's new is not that people don't believe, but that it's, you know, now the mainstream consensus and that kind of the official culture itself now sanctions people essentially saying negative things about Christianity and being explicitly negative towards Christianity in the public square. And again, I think this this has been out there for a very long time, but it's really a fairly recent phenomenon in which it really changed. The culture really switched to allow this to become a, essentially the dominant position. And so I picked uh, 2014 as the start date, but I think it's really Obama's second term is where things started to to change. And so if you think about it, for example, in 2008, California, maybe the bluest state in the country, California, voted in favor of a constitutional amendment to ban gay marriage. It won a popular vote. Also in 2008, both Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton said that they opposed gay marriage. Barack Obama even cited his Christian beliefs as a reason for that. Rick Warren prayed at Barack Obama's first inaugural. You go to his second inaugural, this pastor, Louis Giglio, had to withdraw after controversy over his beliefs on sexuality. And uh, then, of course, we had the Obergefell decision in 2015. And now, you know, less than 20 years after 2008, uh, you know, it seems like the culture war front uh, on sexuality is transgender athletes and high school girls sports, which that's quite a sea change to say the least. Then Obama's second term also saw what's been labeled the Great Awakening on race. There was a huge hard left turn into a sort of race obsession during that period. And again, people like secular uh, pundit Matthew Iglesias have said this. There's been you know research showing that, for example, the use of terms like white supremacy and structural racism, et cetera, soared in the mainstream media during this time. And this predated Donald Trump. So Donald Trump can't be blamed for causing this. Jonathan Haidt, the NYU professor, said 2013 was really when he started noticing things going crazy on campuses. And then again, I do think that Trump illustrates what has changed. Now, not that he caused the changes, but he's sort of a product of it. You know, in a sort of positive world, 
where there were sort of these still, I would say, Christian moral ethical frameworks in society, probably someone like Trump doesn't get nominated, much less elected. So I think, you know, he is an example of the profound changes in society and how we can talk about others, perhaps, if you'd like. And it's not just that this affects the church, it affects the society pervasively. Aaron Wren is our guest. We're talking about Christianity in a hostile culture. He's author of the new book, Life in the Negative World. When we come back, what events facilitated the decline of Christianity's status? Here's an easy way for you to help us cast ChristNet on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review the Issues Etc. podcast with your podcast provider. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us reach more listeners in 2024. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. Join Lutherans for Life at the For Such a Time as This Lutheran Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston, Texas. Enjoy the testimony and talents of Dove Award-winning musician and adoptee Mark Schultz. Discover expert information and exciting opportunities, and experience the fellowship and celebration. The 2024 Lutheran Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston. Find out more and register at lutheransforlife.org slash conferences. Contending for truth in an age of anti-truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. This is Pastor Matthew Harrison, President of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The LCMS operates the second largest parochial school system in the United States. What can you expect from a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school? There's one race, the human race. And Jesus died for the sins of every man, woman, and child from every land and every nation. Life begins at conception. All life is precious from womb to tomb. And every student, parent, and teacher is created in the very image of God. There's right and wrong, and we know which is which from the Ten Commandments. There are only two sexes, male and female, he created them. Marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. There's such a thing as objective, absolute truth, and it's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and His Word. To find a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school near you, visit lcms.org schools. We're talking about Christianity in a hostile culture. Aaron Wren is our guest. Aaron, what events facilitated the decline of Christianity's status? That's a very difficult thing to say, and I don't really treat it too much in my book. But basically, there's been an ongoing like process of call it secularization, if you want to, for a very long time. You, you know, there's there's all these people that try to track where did it all go wrong. You know, some people say it was the Protestant Reformation. Some people say it was you know William of Ockham and nominalism. This Canadian philosopher, Charles Taylor, wrote sort of a famous book called A Secular Age. He sort of tells a, a 500-year story arc of how we got to now. And you can say, oh, it's the Enlightenment, or it was Darwin, or it was this, or it was that. The truth is, 
that this has been an outworking of something that's been ongoing for an extremely long period of time. I don't believe it was inevitable. I mean, I don't think there's an inevitability about these things. I think there's much more contingency than we think. But this sort of process is something that's a little above my pay grade. What I do highlight in my book are a few things that I think do play a role. I think the collapse of the old Protestant establishment is definitely one. So long as Protestantism was one of the characteristics that defined the ruling class of America, they were certainly not going to let Christianity fall into disrepute because that would destroy part of the boundary that defined their community. Then also, I think just an incredibly critical event was the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union. And again, I think it's no accident that, you know, we added in God we trust to our money in the 1950s. This was part of the Cold War. Christianity was bound up with the Western response against the avowedly atheist communist system in the world. And so as long as we were still engaged in a sort of existential struggle with communism, it wasn't very likely that we were going to, you know, abandon Christianity. But, you know, after the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, all bets were off on that. And in fact, I think you could maybe make an argument that maybe I should have used 1989 instead of 1994 as the start of the neutral world, but because I think that was a key event. You say that the negative world is something fundamentally new. What do you mean by that? Well, again, you know, in the 400-year history of the country, Christianity was held in public honor, and now it is not. That is something that is different. We're, we're now in a sort of post-Christendom world, if you will. And again, not to suggest that the entirety of American history from Plymouth Rock to 1964 it had a monolithic view of Christianity. Obviously, there was a lot going on in there, a lot of variety. But at the same time, again, um, you know, the idea that, you know, you, you needed to, you know, America needed to have strong religious faith to preserve ordered liberty and things, that would have, people would have said that. And so now it, it is really, I think, unprecedented that you can simply say, you know, not only is America in a sense post-Christian, but is becoming anti-Christian. How were Christianity strategies that you discussed before, how were they impacted by the dawn of the negative world? Well, in the positive and neutral world, we did see the emergence of these strategies. And, you know, what I saw with, what I continue to see with the the negative world is there really hasn't been the emergence of a strategy for the negative world. So there is kind of one proposal that uh, is out there. The author doesn't use the term negative world specifically, but it's sort of the first grappling with this, and that was Rod Dreher's Benedict Option. He wrote that book in the beginning of 2017, and he's Eastern Orthodox and formerly Catholic, didn't understand the evangelical world all that well. Evangelicals sort of rejected the Benedict Option. Christianity Today magazine, for example, commissioned four different writers to give their opinion on the book, and all four of them had significant criticisms. And I think at that time, he may have been a little early to market on that. I think there was a sort of a sense of denial of how the world had changed. So what we've seen, I think, is that people have basically been doubling down on what they were doing before. So if you're a culture warrior, you're saying what we need to do is take the gloves off and really fight harder. If you're a cultural engager, maybe you're trying to show uh, the secular culture that you share many of their values trying to preserve these things. But what's happened is there has been a sort of a deformation of these strategies and sort of they've been coming into conflict with each other. Sort of the evangelical world sort of cracks up and starts fighting amongst itself, if you will. 
so we see that certainly in cases like, um, you know, David French or, you know, who would have, you would have considered him sort of a, a culture warrior person on the right. Well, now he's at the New York Times and every other column he writes is denouncing the Christian right. And uh, we see a lot of the cultural engagers. They're basically out there, a lot of them in the major media, denouncing conservative evangelicals right and left. Tim Alberta, who's an, a reporter at The Atlantic, he just wrote a new book, The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory. And it's very much in this mode. He's, you know, he's like, I'm an evangelical, but I think Trump was the most horrible thing. And I think the people who support Trump are very horrible people, basically, for the most part. I mean, he, he allows for some nuance there. But the, the book is basically just nonstop bashing of uh, Trump supporters. And again, for their part, I think the culture warriors, you know, they used to talk a lot about character and leadership when, you know, with Bill Clinton under the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And now it's sort of like, you know, well, they don't care about that anymore. It's like, oh, we need Trump. That's all that matters. We need a fighter. And so I think all, uh, you know, these different groups really have sort of deformed and the, the culture war has now migrated from the world to the church. There's much more sort of infighting in the evangelical world than there there was previously. And so I see that this will probably continue for a while. But what we really need is kind of, I would call it that again, the development of new ideas for this negative world. Aaron Wren is our guest, author of the new book, Life in the Negative World, Confronting Challenges in an Anti-Christian Culture. We're talking about Christianity in a hostile culture. And after this, we will find out what it means to live as a moral minority. We know that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes, dedicated customer service, and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. Click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House, listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House, cph.org. Psalm 144.1 Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Those serving in the armed forces want LCMS chaplains. We need courageous pastors to bring the gospel and sacraments to those protecting our nation, along with wise counsel and the peace found only in Christ Jesus. If you are between the age of 26 and 43 and have a heart for ministry in the armed forces, call 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Memoria Press is a worldwide leader in the publishing of classical Christian education. We have everything you need for students in kindergarten through 12th grade, and our materials can be used in any classroom setting to suit your needs. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 to save $5 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Do you dream about having stained glass windows at your church, but know they are too expensive to ever get them? Ad Cruesome has the solution. Our window clings are an excellent way to enhance the beauty of your church without breaking that glass ceiling. Visit adcruesome.com and reach out to us to work with you on this project. Ad Cruesome, established in 2014 and still going strong. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. Your comprehensive source for information, teaching, and truth. You're listening to Issues Etc.
come and, and experience firsthand by sitting down in classes and actually hearing professors, coming to chapel, which is always the high point of the day, to hear the Word of God and to lift their voices in song. Issues Etc. regular guest Dr. Paul Grimm on why you should consider visiting Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Spend time talking to professors. I mean, there's not a professor here who will not be willing to, to take time, whether it's after chapel during the coffee hour or just to come into one's study and, and sit down and talk for a while, to answer questions, to you know, help them to get a sense of, A, you know, do they want to be a pastor or a deaconess? And then B, is this the right place? And well, maybe C would be the question, is now the right time for them to make that decision? If you've contemplated the vocation of pastor or deaconess, contact Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, 1-800-481-2155, 800-481-2155, or send an email to admission at ctsfw.edu. Lutherans for Life is hosting an adoption conference for such a time as this, April 10th and 11th in Houston, Texas. For more information, visit lutheransforlife.org, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Lutherans for Life, lutheransforlife.org. We're talking about Christianity in a hostile culture with Aaron Wren. He's a writer and consultant in Indianapolis, co-founder and senior fellow at American Reformer, and author of the new book, Life in the Negative World, Confronting Challenges in an Anti-Christian Culture. Aaron, what does it mean to live as a moral minority? Well, if we were once, you know, you could at least claim to be the moral majority. When you recognize that you're in a minority position, you have to think differently about how to engage in the world around you. So, for example, much of the evangelical world was mobilized around overturning Roe versus Wade, to make it possible to outlaw abortion, and that actually happened. But what we see is that the public actually wants abortion to be legal. I mean, in every case that abortion's been put on the ballot, the voters have been pro-abortion. You know, we even saw that in deep red states like Kentucky, a very conservative state. And so what do you do when the things that you want are not the things that the majority of the people want and you live in a democracy? You know, you got to rethink how you're approaching the world. And that's an uncomfortable place. One of the things that I sort of talk about in the book, though, is this should be giving evangelicals an opportunity to rethink a lot of things about the way they've been doing business. For example, rethink the relationship between evangelicals and the institutions of mainstream society. I think one of the reasons that evangelicalism in particular struggled is because America was sort of a Protestant normative country. You know, the institutions were Protestant. You know, Harvard, Princeton, and Yale were founded to train Protestant ministers. And even in the mid-century era, they were still sort of Protestant run and embodied a sort of Protestant ethos, if you will. It was a liberal Protestant ethos, to be sure, but still a sort of Protestant ethos. You know, when William F. Buckley, in I think it was 1951, wrote his book, God and Man at Yale, there was a tremendous blowback against this. And part of that blowback is because here was this Irish Catholic upstart who was sort of invited into the citadel of wasp culture, and he sort of trashed them. I mean, what an ingrate, right? You know, a lot of people at the time said, look, he's a Catholic. He doesn't understand what we're about. This is a Puritan and Protestant institution. And what's happened is as sort of Christianity has sort of been evicted and decentered out of these institutions in society, that's left 
evangelicals fairly bereft in a lot of ways of their sources of identity, community, cohesion, and formations, the sustaining of community life. This is one area, I think, where the Lutherans are way ahead. You know, Lutheranism in the U.S. was historically kind of ethnically bound in a sense, and certainly developed a tremendous amount of of its own institutions. I mean, its own schools, its own colleges, its own seminaries. It's got a quite an ecosystem around it that sort of sustains Lutheranism as a minority group in the U.S. Of course, you know, Lutherans were a part of this sort of Protestant consensus, but, you know, America was much more Calvinist than it was Lutheran. There's never been a Lutheran president of the United States, for example, I don't believe. And so, Lutherans, you know, again, created a tremendous infrastructure. And so there may be issues with aging congregations and things of that nature. I'm not going to say that Lutheranism has no issues today, but I do think this idea that like how Lutheranism and similarly, like the Dutch Reformed Church, the Christian Reformed Church in America created a tremendous, robust institutional infrastructure to demarcate and sustain community life and things with which you could identify with is sort of a source of strength. So that's an example of what it means to be a minority. I actually suggest looking at early 20th century Catholicism, which, you know, was out of favor, certainly in the country at the time. There was probably a lot of anti-Catholic animus still in that era. And so they built, you know, they built their own schools, they built their own churches, they they built their own fraternal societies. And so there's, you know, if you look around it today, you look at something like the University of Notre Dame, is still a recognizably Catholic institution. Now, it does it you know abide by all of you know Catholic doctrine? No, it doesn't. But it's still both a real university and a self-consciously Catholic one. Whereas, probably wouldn't say that about any of the Protestant schools. There are a lot of quote-unquote Christian colleges, but they're not viewed you know as like real academic institutions in the way that Notre Dame is or some of the other Catholic colleges. And so I think creating those sorts of things is going to be important for evangelicals. You talk about Christian obedience, excellence, and resilience in the negative world. Describe these qualities, if you would. Well, these are things that I talk about in terms of individual action. So in my book, you know, the first quarter of the book is here's the negative world, life in the negative world, where here's here's what the negative world is and all the analysis we talked about. The second three fourths are basically how should we live in it? What is the life in the negative world? And so I, I talk about that across the three dimensions of personal, institutional, and missional. And those are ones that were sort of personal ones that I looked at. And I think part of it was like, look, the first, first thing we had to do is simply get more serious about our faith and be, you know, 100% committed to it. I, you know, throughout history, because we, but let's go back to the 1950s. You know, a lot of people who attended church every Sunday weren't especially religious, They were just there because that's part of what you did to be an upstanding member of society. You might get looked at strange if you didn't go to church. And so when times were good and you got some rewards even for being identifying as a Christian, wow, you know, it's kind of easy to be lukewarm and all of that. Well, now, you know, now that we're facing, you know, more uncertain times, you know, we have to to see, did we count the costs when we started building the tower? Is our house built on the rock or is it built on the sand? There may never be a flood, but we can at least see storm clouds now. And, you know, that's a possibility in a way that it really wasn't before. And so I look at, again, the Sermon on the Mount, 
where Jesus talks about what is the difference between rock and sand? What is, what do you, how do you build your house on a rock? You hear his words and you actually put them into practice. And so, you know, being that kind of all in is going to be important. And again, I just, you know, talk about in general, like when times get tough, you got to elevate your game. And so, yes, that's about spiritual excellence, but then there's sort of excellence in every other dimensions of our lives. And you can even go aside from Christianity for a minute. The degree of difficulty dial on life has been turned up. It's hard to get married and stay married today, right? It's hard for young people to be able to afford a house. Life is actually hard in some important ways. And so when things get tough, you got to elevate your game because it's a much more difficult environment. So I think that's important. And one of the ways that I talk about that also is in terms of resilience, which is thinking about the way that we structure our lives to make ourselves uh, more resilient in the face of any sort of opposition or negative things that happen. So, you know, if you want to go into some career, you know, in an ultra woke corporation or something, well, maybe that's a great job or whatever, but do you have the conscience to live with that? And so I think things like our choice of occupation, our choice of geography, our personal life choices, as well as the way that we financially structure our lives, determine a lot about how resilient we're going to be in the face of bad things happening. And so things like, well, maybe we should have less debt, have a lower profile, things of that nature are going to become more important, I think. This is the the question that intrigues me. How is the general decline of institutional trust related to the decline of Christianity status? And I guess what I'm asking there is, has the retreat of Christians from those institutions or the growing hostility toward Christianity in those institutions led directly to the general decline of the entire population in their trust for institutions? That's an interesting question. Things are correlated, but what's the causation? I tend to believe that the decline of Christianity is somewhat in effect as much as a cause. If you think of sort of the decline of institutions, Christianity was just one of the institutions that's declined, one of the institutions that has declining trust. I've been hyper, I mean, it's the wrong word, but very influenced by a sociologist named E. Digby Baltzel, who he's the guy who essentially popularized the term WASP for white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. He came from an upper class background in Philadelphia and was the foremost scholar of the American upper class. And he argued, I think, convincingly that this, what he called an establishment, which in his definition of an establishment, it meant that members of this upper class occupied many of the senior most positions in American society. You can think about someone like FDR, for example, being a sort of blue blood from New York, wealthy Teddy Roosevelt as well. These sort of like upper class people really played an inc- key role in institutions. When that broke down and that group of people, that all the, uh, that whole thing disintegrated, that that would lead inevitably to a loss in trust in institutions in general and the rise of things like conspiracy theories, et cetera. And so he sort of argued that the WASP needed to find a way to bring in Catholics, Jews, and others into their clubs, which they actually did do. But it didn't stave off decline. So that's that's complicated. But I mean, I think let's just say the people who cheered the decline of Christianity 
are often not so happy about the decline of all these other institutions, decline in institutional, not just institutional trust, institutional competence. And in my opinion, the decline in trust in institutions is more than warranted. In fact, some of our institutions may be still too trusted relative to the amount of trust that they deserve. And we're sort of catching up. Perception is catching up with reality now. But I do think that these things are very much linked together in a sense. But which caused what, I think, is an interesting question. Since you mentioned that, what role do you think the institution of the now ubiquitous media have played? The media plays an important role in our society in a few ways. I think one of the most important roles that they play today is in enforcing essentially far left ideologies on the country. So if you are someone who deviates from what they want, you can expect that the media is going to declare a jihad on you. And, you know, the reality is virtually no one has the ability to stand up to bad press in the elite media. If you're a CEO of a company and the New York Times starts calling your company a horrible racist company, you're basically not just going to be able to shrug that off, particularly since they're not just going to write one article. They're going to write two articles, 10 articles, 20, until you collapse, until they drive away all your advertisers, until they drive away your customers. They're not just going to let you go. So it's very difficult. And so th this is one of the things I think that has really shaped so much of our society in the last decade or so is everybody is terrified of getting called a racist or some other bad name by the media. So they are sort of ideological enforcers in that way, for certain. Aaron Wren is our guest. We're talking about Christianity in a hostile culture. After the break, what can we learn from other minorities who have come before us? Listen to the best of the church's music for the Epiphany season at lutheranpublicradio.org. Sacred music for the Epiphany season, 24-7. lutheranpublicradio.org. Hello, this is Roy Askins with The Lutheran Witness. You've heard me talk about all the great content we publish in the print magazine of The Lutheran Witness, but I wanted to share with you that we have even more online. Visit our website, witness.lcms.org, where you'll hear even more content on worship this month in particular from Cantor Phil Magnus. We also have a series on literature right now going on and a series on church art with much more planned in the future. You can get all that for free on witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Providing artillery support for the church militant on the front lines, you're listening to Issues Etc. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Dr. Russell Dawn, president of Concordia University, Chicago. Indeed, the quest for truth is at the core of a university's purpose. The liberal arts 
illuminated by the revealed truths of Scripture, are powerful for equipping students for a life of self-governance. A disciple is one who follows the Master. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? He said that it means to take up one's cross. The cross is thus the symbol of dying for others, of dying to self for the sake of serving others. And a life of service is a life well-lived. Truth, Freedom, Vocation. Concordia University, Chicago. cuchicago.edu Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We're talking about Christianity in a hostile culture with Aaron Wren, a writer and consultant in Indianapolis, co-founder and senior fellow at American Reformer, author of the new book, Life in the Negative World, Confronting Challenges in the Anti-Christian Culture. If you're looking for school options for the 2024-25 school year, visit lcms.org schools. Lutheran Church Missouri Synod congregations operate more than 800 elementary schools with almost 80,000 students and more than 1,600 early childhood centers and preschools serving more than 100,000 students. Find a Lutheran school near you at lcms.org schools, lcms.org schools. Aaron, what can we learn from minorities who have come before us? You know, again, I think the Lutherans are an interesting model. I think that the uh, early 20th century Catholics are a good good model. There are a lot of successful minority groups out there. You know, a lot of them are, are tough to take lessons from. One, it's like, okay, you know, for example, a racial minority or an ethnic minority is a form of minority, but they're a little bit different, you know, in the sense that if you're black, you're never going to be able to stop being black. Whereas if you're if you're a Christian, you can renounce your religion and you can kind of get rid of that. Similarly, you know, if, if you're, you know, nobody can just look at you and tell what your religion is for the most part. There are some exceptions there. Whereas if you're, you know, an ethnic or racial minority, many times you're just, you're visibly distinct. So we shouldn't necessarily conflate the types of challenges or opportunities or ways of, from some of these other things. And, then, you know, there are definitely some sort of uh, kind of ethno-religious minorities like Jews and Sikhs who've made very impressive accomplishments in America in terms of their community life. But they're also, there are, there are small groups. There's an ethnic dimension to their religion. And so I don't know how much can be learned from them, however impressive it is. You can take, you know, whatever you can find to be sure. But I think, you know, looking at sort of sizable kind of minority groups, I look especially at, uh, again, earlier 20th century Catholicism or maybe the Mormons. I think there's probably a lot to be learned from Mormonism, which went from sort of a persecuted sect to, you know, now one of the most successful groups in America. On the subject of gender in particular, you say we should avoid theologies of triangulation. What are those? Well, triangulation, uh, you know, is this uh, term that was used to describe the politics of Bill Clinton and Tony Blair. And it was an attempt to find sort of a third way between kind of left and right. And, you know, these third way theologies or missional strategies very much got associated with the cultural engagement people, particularly folks like Tim Keller. So they would say things like, well, you know, the gospel's not Democrat, the gospel's not Republican. It's, 
conservative on this, it's liberal on that. So there's a, this attempt to sort of like occupy this middle ground and sort of square the circle a little bit. You sort of see this on some of the uh, gender theologies a little bit within the, the evangelical church, which um, it's way too complicated a topic to go into now. But some of them attempted to find a sort of halfway house between maybe feminism and patriarchy, and they're trying to massage that and sort of do some things like that. And I think trying to like massage the optics on these things, that's not all bad, to be quite honest. But there's a sense in which, you know, I think in the negative world, we have to be clear. What do we really believe to be true? And the North Star, North Star needs to be truth, which is to say we have to discern and align ourselves with the truth and speak the truth. And again, maybe that doesn't mean you need to go around being a public bomb thrower, provocateur kind of person, which a lot of people were in the kind of culture war mode. Maybe you actually do less of that, but you should at least be clear about what you believe and make sure that the things you do say are actually true. And so I think realigning around that and less around trying to square the circle is the way we should do it. And again, the politics of people like Clinton and Blair are very much out of favor. What is prudential engagement with the culture? Well, prudential engagement is what I advocate for for sort of politics and culture, which is to say, even though you're a moral minority, you can't withdraw. You know, you can't go head for the hills. You can't go hide out in a bunker somewhere or in your ultra rural homestead and all that. I mean, sure, I'm sure there are some people who are going to homestead. That's great for them. But that's not the reality for most people. And so we have to engage in the world around us. And I think we need to have wisdom in doing that. And we need to think about what does it mean to be engaged? And again, I think abortion is a good example. Now it is possible to make abortion illegal, but the majority of the country wants abortion to be legal. So if you are an anti-abortion activist, a Catholic or evangelical, how do you engage in that? I think it requires some degree of wisdom or judgment or prudence It's not something where you can simply say, well, you must do this or you must do that. It's like voting. We're not going to have great candidates to vote for in the 2024 election, most likely. So how do you vote or not vote? How do you do that? Thinking about those things is important. And one reason I bring this up is because there's definitely a move inside the evangelical church to create a theology of withdrawal and a theology of uh, loserdom. The idea being that, you know, it's like Jesus came to give up power. He didn't come to take power. So it, it's this idea that, you know, we, we were exiles here. And so the point is like, we shouldn't be doing all this politicking. You know, God, you know, America, the U.S. of A. isn't God's kingdom. Forget about the USA. You're making an idol out of your country. You're making an idol out of politics. You need to essentially disengage from politics and reconcile yourself to being beat on by the culture passively and taking it. Now, of course, all the people who are saying this are some of the loudest voices when it comes to, like, for example, racial justice. So they don't even believe their own rhetoric. It's a form of manipulation. And so what I'm saying is, you know, we need to stay engaged. Disengagement is not a strategy. At the same time, there is a place for saying, you know, what is the wise thing to do in this? I'm curious, just as kind of a particular question, how do you explain that a billionaire with the Playboy past who says that he's never asked God for forgiveness and seldom attends church, is seen by many cultural warriors, many of them Christian, as their leader. 
Yeah, well, it is interesting. You know, I think there is a sense in which who are you going to vote for when there are no good choices? And there are people who sort of made the choice to vote for Trump as the lesser of two evils. You know, but there are people that really did go all in for this guy and uh, defend him relentlessly. You know, even talk about him using messianic language. I even cite in the book an uh, example of Rick Perry, the former Texas governor, doing that. And I, you know, I think that's wrong. Yeah, I, I don't think that people should be overstating Trump's virtues. Let me put you that way. But it is also the case that I think a lot of Trump supporters are not especially religious people. There is this growing kind of divergence between what you might call a cultural evangelical, who's someone who identifies as an evangelical but doesn't really attend church, and then sort of the more religious evangelicals. My impression is that the the heartland of Trump support is really people who say they're evangelicals but aren't necessarily regular church attenders. If you read J.D. Vance's book, Hillbilly Elegy, he talks a little bit about his people, the hillbillies. They were all talked about God. They all believe in God, but very few of them actually went to church. His biological father got very involved in Pentecostalism and was, was a very serious religious man later in life. But for the most part, these were not religious people. And I think, you know, it gives you a sense into the, some of the core Trump base. Finally, with a minute here, we will soon have a generation that cannot remember the positive world and barely remembers the neutral world. What comes after the negative world? We don't know. And so that's why I say what we have to be willing to do is to adopt a posture of exploration, knowing that we're entering an unfamiliar territory. I use the example of the Israelites crossing the Jordan River into the promised land, entering the unknown. And uh, we have to be comfortable walking more by faith than by sight. Aaron Wren is a writer and consultant in Indianapolis. He's co-founder and senior fellow at American Reformer and author of the new book, Life in the Negative World, Confronting Challenges in an Anti-Christian Culture. You can purchase this book at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Aaron, thank you very much. Thank you. Thursday on Issues Etc., we'll continue our Kids Have Questions series with Pastor Jonathan Connor. And on Friday, we'll study the Epiphany Hymn Songs of Thankfulness and Praise with Dr. Arthur Just. And we'll have Pastor Brian Wolfmiller respond to evangelical cliches. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., PO Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234, Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of His family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to
Do you dread going to work out? Performance Fitness in Edwardsville offers a fun, supportive, tight-knit community and environment. Visit them on the web at performancefitness618.com or call 618-692-5063. Performance Fitness is the facility in the St. Louis Metro East where the focus is on member results, not membership numbers. 618-692-5063 or performancefitness618.com. Performance Fitness of Edwardsville. Organist Service, aptly abbreviated SOS, really has come to our rescue. Pastor Jim Hollowatch of Christ Lutheran Church in Jackson, Mississippi. With the ever-growing shortage of skilled musicians in our community, we were approaching a real crisis. But thanks to the Substitute Organist Service, help is always just minutes away. With its easy, intuitive interface, friendly customer service, and outstanding musicianship, you really couldn't ask for more. You can find out more about the Substitute Organist Service at churchmusicsolutions.com. A blind sinner is carried to baptism administered by a pastor. Morning Chapel from Kramer Chapel. Live weekday mornings at 9 Central, 10 Eastern, 8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org. That was the epiphany event where our eyes were opened to see the amazing grace of God in the very face of Jesus Christ. 